Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I have found no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over you, over to you, has greater has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Um, yeah, my name is Sam. If we haven't met, um, and it's my privilege to get to preach that passage this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll we'll kind of read and talk our way through it, and see what we can learn. Let me pray. Heavenly Fathers, we approach um, these moments in the narrative, in the story, the the real climax of the entire history of humanity, the climax of the story of redemption. Um, We tremble a bit considering these things and just pray for your help uh, by your Holy Spirit uh, to speak to us, to reveal the wonderful, wonderful truths that lie on the inside this passage. Um, impress them on our hearts, we pray, and we would behold Jesus this morning. That would be enough for us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you wouldn't mind just indulging me for a second with a little bit of a... Um, an experiment. So I just want you to um, lift your, I'm going to read some lyrics from a song, and I just want you to lift your hand as you recognize the song, and set, maybe you don't recognize the song, and, but it's going to date me just a little bit, but I'm hoping it dates other people as well. Anyway, just run with it, and we'll see how we go. It's like rain on your wedding day. Oh, that's pretty good. Okay, that's encouraging. It's a free ride when you've already paid. It's the good advice that you just didn't take, and who would have thought it figures? Anyone, everyone, anyone not know that song? Yeah? Okay, good. A lot of young people. It's a 90s classic by uh, Alanis Morissette, and it is called Ironic. And in it, she gives lists, it kind of lists out a whole array of different kind of ironies that, she, um, that can happen in life. So she says things like this. An old man turned 98. He won the lottery and died the next day. It's a death row pardon, two minutes too late. A traffic jam when you're already late. A no smoking sign on your cigarette break. It's like 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. Don't you hate that? 10,000 spoons and you just wanted one single knife. Terrible. Throughout the song, she repeats the question... Isn't it ironic, don't you think? To which the answer, of course, as most, a lot of people have noted, is no, that's not ironic. 
Those is unlucky, maybe, like unfortunate, sure, but ironic, no. In fact, the irony that's at play in the song about irony is that there actually is zero irony in the song. What a shame. When I was a bit younger um, and, well, I'm very easily entertained, as you'll be able to tell in a moment, a friend of mine and myself, um, Robbie, we would go online and we noticed that there existed this particular group of people that we liked to, we termed the irony police, right? And they were the irony police, right? And they're the people that, you know, any hint of someone saying, hey, that's ironic and it's not actually irony, they will swoop in, sirens blazing, and let you know that that is not, in fact, irony. And we like to trigger those people because it's just a bit of fun. So we would put things online and just go and we'd talk about how ironic it is when it's clearly not. So we wrote things like this on Facebook. How's this for some crazy irony? I'm in the sun and I'm not sunburnt. Hashtag ironic much? You can see how easily entertaining we were. Um, I was watching, we were watching a movie called Social Network, you know, it was the movie about, you know, kind of make it, the making of Facebook, and we posted, I'm watching a movie about Facebook while being on Facebook. Now tell me that's not ironic. Which, it's like, it's not. It's like, obviously not. And so in they would come and we would time the, you know, time their response time of the irony police. As I said, easily entertained. I bring all this up mainly because um, this passage is full to the brim of irony. Uh, Almost sentence after sentence is just dripping with layer upon layer of irony. And, And as with a lot of passages in the Bible, and particularly in John, the meaning of the passage is found in its ironies. This has been super common in John. We've been uh, mentioning it throughout the book as we've been traveling through it. Let me give you a few examples just so you can have a feel for what we might find in this passage. So if you remember back in chapter 2, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders while he's in the temple, he says, destroy this temple and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. And they think, uh, no, I'd actually, I don't think we will do that, right? We will, we will not do that. We don't think you can just rebuild it in three days. We'll pass. We will not destroy the temple. What's the irony? They will. Because the temple is actually Jesus' body. Do you see? Chapter 5, people are asking Jesus for bread from heaven. And the point of the passage is, Jesus is bread from heaven. You are asking bread from heaven to give you bread from heaven. Chapter 11 was really obvious. The high priest Caiaphas declares to the other Jewish leaders, no, we're going to have to kill Jesus. It is better for one man to die than the whole nation to perish. The irony is, He's preaching the gospel. As Jesus dies, it is one man dying on behalf of, instead of, God's people, his people. Think about just last week. Jesus is on trial. Remember the Jewish leaders, they will not go into Pilate's headquarters, Pilate's palace. They will not go in. Why? Because they don't want to be made unclean. They are so strict on their Jewish law keeping around Passover. And whilst in the meantime, what are they trying to do? Break the sixth commandment commit murder. So here's our passage. It picks up right where we left off last week. We have Jesus, Pilate, and the Jewish leaders in the last moments before Jesus is handed over to be crucified. We read it in the last verse. Our last verse that we're looking at, Pilate hands Jesus over to them to be crucified. For the Jewish leaders, this is the climax of of so much planning, hoping, scheming, bribing. This is their moment. <clears throat> Notice that it's been happening, they've been planning this since as far back as chapter 5. John wrote, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Chapter 8, Jesus called himself the I Am, and they picked up stones to kill him. Chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And again, they pick up stones to kill him. Chapter 11, again, Caiaphas says, Jesus must die. And John writes this, he says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Well, now is their moment. They have him, right? He's before Pilate. It's all been leading to this. And they will not be satisfied unless they, this day ends with Jesus hanging dead on a cross. Now, Pilate wants them to be satisfied with something less than that 
for Jesus. And that's where our passage picks up. Verse 1, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Why? He's already said, I find no guilt in this man. This is an innocent man. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. You flogged an innocent man. The Jewish leaders have not asked for Jesus to be flogged. They've asked for him to, be, to die. So why do this? Well, it's because Pilate wants them to be satisfied with less than that. This gets to the character, I think, of Pilate. He's not ultimately a man who's after justice. He's not a man of principle. He will not stick up for the innocent. No, he's a, he's a, he's a politician in the worst sense of the term. He's a maneuverer. He's an appeaser. He wants to keep people happy. He would like to have as little innocent blood on his hands, but he's happy to shed a bit. Already compromising. And so he has Jesus flogged. He takes him back inside. Notice they've been inside, outside, inside, outside. Well, now they go back inside for the flogging. There were three forms of floggings that prisoners might receive. The least severe was called Fustigatio, I'm sure I'm saying it wrong, given for small offenses, but accompanied by severe threats, severe warnings. Then was the flagellatio, more brutal, given for greater offenses. And then finally, verberatio, the most terrible form. In this case, the victim would be tied to a post and the torturers would get leather whips mixed with metals, bones, and lash the prisoner, tearing their skin apart. Bones exposed, entrails exposed. Many prisoners would die just from the tortures. They would whip and whip until either they were exhausted, too exhausted to keep going, or they were told to stop. Now, we know that Jesus received that. From other Gospels. The one that John mentions here is only that first kind. This one leads to that one. That's where we do end up. But first, we're here, the least severe, leading to the most severe. So right now, you just, just imagine and think on the, how Pilate is operating in such ignorance of what's going on. He thinks in his fantasy world, that these Jewish leaders might be satisfied with this. They, they, they are bloodthirsty. They have asked for death. You're not even close, Pilate. But the flogging is only just part of what happens to Jesus in Pilate's house. In verse 2, it says this, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. You see, Jesus, Jesus is soon to go back outside. And he's soon to go outside to be presented back to the Jewish leaders and to the crowds. And so they think to themselves, well, we, let's present him how we want to present him. He says he's a king. Let's make him look like a king, like the king that we think he is. I imagine one soldier saying, well, you know what? Every king has a crown. Let's, let's get him a crown. So a soldier goes and gets um, sharp long spikes from a date palm nearby and they twist it together into the shape of a crown, hold it above Jesus' head like a coronation. Instead of placing it though, they would shove it down into his head, the spikes sinking into his skin, blood flowing from the top of his body all the way down. Oh, and another soldier might think, you know what else kings have? They have royal purple robes. Let's give him a robe. So they take the robe off their own back, unattach it, swing it over Jesus' shoulders, put it on him. The verse says, they arrayed him in a purple robe. And then standing back, I imagine, looking at this obscene, brutal picture, they decide it's time to worship worship. Verse 3, they came up to him saying, 
Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So one by one, they come up and just give mock, sarcastic, intended to humiliate praise. Hail, King of the Jews, look at him. They lift their hands to worship, but then turn those hands to strike him. The Greek word for strike there describes a sharp blow with the flat of the hand. Isaiah 50 verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Well, the irony of all this sits in plain sight, doesn't it? Doesn't it? They say and they act out far more than they know or far more than they intend to truly ascribe to Jesus. But it turns out the one they dress up as a pitiful excuse for a king is in fact the king of kings, the greatest of all kings. The one they crown with thorns has actually come to reverse the curse to deal with the curse that was laid on all of creation back in Genesis chapter 3, where thorns and thistles were to describe life in this world. He is the one who will one day be crowned with many crowns. Those lips which now offer him mock praise, hail the King of the Jews, those lips have never uttered truer words in all their life. And it's because he goes through all of this, the Lord Jesus, that he will be truly worshipped in all of eternity by all of the redeemed who have been redeemed by his blood. And he will be worthy of that praise. Why? Because he is the lamb who was slain. All of this looks like total humiliation. And yet the irony is this is his glory. This is the answer of the Father to the prayer of the Son in chapter 17, verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Verse 4, the scene moves back outside then. It says, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Pilate says to them, what you're about to see, Jesus hasn't come out yet, but what you're about to see is an innocent man. But it's not going to look like he's an innocent man because he's been flogged and he's been mocked. Can we all agree, I think he's saying, that this is enough for today. We have done enough to this man. Verse 5, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Behold the man. Behold the man you're so afraid of. Behold this weak man. This impotent man. Behold him. This bruised, incapable man. Behold a harmless man. Behold him. Look at him. Take this in. Is this not enough? Because in the end, he's an innocent man. Verse 6. When the chief priests and officers saw him, what do you expect to come next? Would you expect to see, and their consciences burned. What are we doing? Like they took pity on him. They had regret. What are we doing? No, it says they cried out, they screamed, crucify him, crucify him, repeated. So it's emphatic to Pilate, we are not satisfied with this. We do not come here for some flogging and some mockery. We have come for a crucifixion. We will not budge. We see what you are doing. We see what you are trying. It will not work. I'm sure most of us here know, um, have been explained how crucifixions work, what they're, what they're actually asking for in this moment. When they say, crucify him, 
crucify him. The gospel authors don't generally explain it, probably because most the audience they're writing to knew exactly how it worked. And you just, in that society, you don't talk about it. It's too gross. It's, 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 it's too awful. Um, the secular historian Tom Holland writes this. He says, No death was more excruciating, more contemptible than crucifixion. To be hung naked, long in agony, swelling with ugly wheels on shoulders and chest, helpless to beat away the clamorous birds. Such a fate, Roman intellectuals agreed, was the worst imaginable. Its design was a warning. So it was slow, it was as humiliating as possible, and it was as painful as possible, and it was public. The average Roman did not want to think about it, hear about it, see it. Like I said, they didn't even want the thought in their heads of this, of the cross. It's too gross. And that's what they demand for Jesus, not some flogging, you see. So it says then, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. I think Pilate's indignant at them at this stage. You didn't receive what I offered you, a beaten man? You came to me for judgment, I give you judgment and you reject it? You don't actually want me to do my job at all. You've decided, you've already decided, you've already, you've already come to the conclusion of what you want, that he's guilty and therefore he deserves this. I'm just standing here like a puppet. I don't actually get to do what I'm meant to be doing. So you go do it. You clearly find him guilty. I don't. Go for it. Of course, it's sarcastic because they can't. They don't have that kind of authority. They've already said back in chapter 18, verse 31, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. He says, go for it. But they can't. So verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die. Because he has made himself the son of God. You see, their first strategy in getting Pilate to do, the thing that they wanted Pilate to do, has failed. They went political and, and, and Roman law. They said, he says he's a king. Well, Pilate has investigated that claim. Are you a king? Well, my kingdom's not of this world. Pilate is not threatened by Jesus and his claims to kingship. Well, strike one. What, what do we try now? Instead of Roman law and, and, and politics, let's try religion. Let's try our law. He says he's the son of God. That's blasphemy. We have a penalty for that, and that is death. What law is that? Leviticus 24, 16 says, Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. There is a death sentence for blasphemy. Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God. Now you can claim, you can use the, the, the term Son of God in a non-blasphemous way, right? To do with um, Israel, the kings in Israel, the Messiah. But these people recognize that Jesus is saying more than that. When he claims to be the Son of God and he speaks about his special relationship to the Father, he's saying far more than that. He's claiming equality with God. That's why they wanted to stone him a couple times. When he's saying, I am in the Father and the Father is in me, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and I've come from the Father, they know what he's saying. He's claiming to be divine, and that's blasphemy, unless it's true. says this, verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. So commentators point out that um, Romans often had, um, a they had a category for people, men, that would be sent by the gods, divine type men, who had divine type powers. And so, it's likely the reason Pilate is afraid is he's just heard that Jesus claims to be like that, like a son of God. Is this man sent from the gods? I've just flogged him. 
I, I mocked him. I had them mock him. And I know he's innocent. And I've seen his behavior. He's a, like already probably impacted by the, the, the life of Jesus. And he is afraid. So he takes Jesus back inside, notice. Verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. See the question? Where are you from? But that makes sense. Like, son of God, okay, where are you from? Because where where a person is from is often their identity. You can understand what kind of person we're dealing with if I know where you're from. Well, if I ask you where you're from, that's not that hard a question to answer for us, is it? You know, Sam, where are you from? I say, well, I was born in Gympie. I mean, I was born in Brisbane. I grew up in Gympie, right? I drove here from Cornubia this morning. If I asked you, you'd be like, yep, that's, I can tell you the same exact story. What about Jesus? How should Jesus answer that question? Where are you from? Well, it's more complicated, isn't it? He could say, I was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, came in on a donkey. That's not really relevant to what's going on here, is it? These claims, it's not going to help Pilate navigate this situation. In fact, it's amazing that John's gospel doesn't mention any of that when it talks about Jesus' background and where he came from. How has John described where Jesus comes from? He didn't include the birth narrative. He actually went further back. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes back to the pre-existent Son, equal with the Father. Okay, can Jesus say that? Where did you come from? Where are you from? I am from the Father. I am the pre-existent, eternal Son of God. Pilate cannot possibly process this. He's already said, he's, he's already bared testimony that he is not that interested in seeking truth. And so Jesus is silent. He doesn't answer. 50, Isaiah 53 verse 7, we heard earlier, He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Verse 10, So Pilate said to Him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? You won't answer me, Pilate says. Can you see that? Do you not know? Are you ignorant of who I am? Are you ignorant of the kind of authority that I have in this moment? I have your life in my hands, Pilate says. Your life is in my hands. I could release you and I could crucify you. And right now, I don't know which one I'll do. It could go either way. That's who I am. You're silent to me? Don't you realize? He takes it as a personal insult, doesn't he? A question of his authority. If I ask you a question, you will answer me. Your life is in my hands. I'm your only hope of being saved from this moment. How foolish. I could release you or crucify you. Verse 11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Jesus speaks now. Silence is broken. But it's just to put Pilate back in his place, isn't it? Your authority? You would have none. Unless it was given to you from above. Now, the reader of John knows where Jesus is from. He is the one who is from above. Jesus is the one who has authority in this moment. Pilate is not in charge. In fact, it's just obvious from the story, Pilate is an impotent man who desperately wants to be in charge. But God is in control. How important is that for us to know? That in this moment, the most evil moment in all of human history, God is in sovereign, total control. 
Pilate is guilty, of course, of sin. And God is in sovereign control over all the details. The Bible holds those things together all the time. In Acts chapter 4, um, the, the disciples mention Pilate in their prayers. So they're praying and they say this. It's amazing they just mention Pilate. They say, truly in this city, praying to the Father, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Parrot and, Pon- and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Amazing. Pilate's guilt is real, and God is sovereign over it all. What Pilate means for evil, God means for good. Now, there's levels of guilt, though, isn't there? Pilate is not as guilty as others, Jesus says. Do you see? He says, Jesus says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So there's levels of sin. Not all sins are the same. Sometimes we talk like that. Like, well, all sins are the same. They're obviously not all the same. There's, in a sense, right, every sin brings us under the condemnation, the judgment of God. In that sense, there's a, But obviously, some sins are worse than other sins. Pilate's sin is awful. He is a spineless man. But he didn't go looking for this, right? Pilate's not the one who's been like scheming and planning and plotting how he can kill Jesus, right? Pilate didn't initiate any of this. Who did? Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the one who has handed Jesus over to Pilate and woke him up in the morning. If he didn't do that, Pilate would still be asleep right now. But Caiaphas did this. And Jesus says, that is the greater sin. Verse 12, well, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. I just love that just after he said, do you realize the authority that I have? I can just release you or crucify you. Well, from then on, he tried to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. See what they're doing? It's amazing what they're doing. It's amazing that it would come to this. They're making themselves out to be more loyal to Caesar than Pilate, who directly serves Caesar. They're saying, we care about Caesar. You, you don't seem to care about Caesar. You're not really his friend. Right? We're better friends of Caesar than you. Right? If you're a true friend of Caesar and this man claims to be king, you would protect Caesar. You would guard him. You would get rid of any kind of pretenders who might try to take over Caesar as the true king. A friend wouldn't hesitate with that. You were hesitating. Tiberius Caesar, the Caesar at the time, was known to be very sensitive to any, as they could be back then, to any threats to him, to his kingship. And he had a record of acting very ruthlessly against any kind of hint of sedition. Pilate would know that. So verse 13 says, So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, so outside again, but this time for the last time. And, this is Pilate, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement. And in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And the final judgment is now about to fall. And we wait for the, the announcement, hey, sitting on his judgment seat, But then it doesn't quite come, does it? John adds in a little note. John says in verse 14, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. So, huh, it always strikes you, doesn't it? Why did he do that? Like, this was the moment. He sits down in his judgment seat. What's about to happen? Well, just so you know, it was Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. Why? I, I just think John wants to make sure, as we are about to hear, Pilate hand down his judgment that we have Passover in the front of our minds, the Passover feast. Why? Well, what's the Passover feast? The celebration of the redemption of God's people from slavery. The paradigm for what Jesus is about to do. The celebration of the night 
when God's judgment passed over God's people. Why? Because they had put the blood of a spotless, without blemish lamb on their doorposts. And John wants to make sure, as you hear the next words from Pilate, you have that in your mind. Why? Because Jesus is, as John the Baptist described Jesus, introduced him back in chapter 1, he is the, the, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? He says it's the sixth hour, midday, which is actually the same hour that the priests would slaughter their Passover lambs in the temple. Have that in your mind as we get to the next, as the narrative continues. Now back to Pilate. He said to the Jews from his judgment seat, Behold your king. I think just resigned to the judgment that he is going to have to give, he wants to just mark out how obviously ridiculous all of this is. He's going to have to do it. He's going to go there because he has no integrity. He's spineless. He's weak. He doesn't care about justice. He cares about himself. And so he's going to do it, but he does want to make a point. This is ridiculous. Look at your king. Do you see him? This great threat to Caesar, this great threat of sedition in the Roman Empire, your king. Here he is. Helpless, hopeless, alone, no nation, no armies coming to get revenge. Beaten and bloodied with a crown of thorns. Verse 15, they cry out again, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Just mocking them, isn't he? Shall I? Most nations would be upset about that. Most people would not like that if their king was crucified. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests are riled up. And out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Wow, there it is the truth. God is not their king. They'll never believe in a Messiah. They couldn't handle it. They won't believe in the, the Messiah king promised to King David that he would come and establish an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. They'll have none of it because when he came, they hated him. They actually have no king. Well, God is not their king. Their allegiance is to Caesar right now. We have no king but Caesar. What an outrageous thing for the Jewish religious leaders to say. Isaiah 26, 13. O Lord our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone we bring to remembrance. After the Jewish um, people would often recite Psalms 113 to 118, they would conclude with this prayer. Listen to this prayer. They would all know it. It goes like this, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Beside thee, we have no king, redeemer or savior, no liberator, deliverer, provider, none who takes pity in every time of distress or trouble. We have no king but thee. And they have come to the point now of saying, we have no king but Caesar. It's the climax of what John again prepared us for back in the prologue. Remember chapter 1, verse 11? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So verse 16 is the end. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. I just want to close now uh, looking briefly at the three key parties in this story. That is Pilate, the Jewish leaders, and Jesus. We'll look at Pilate, look at the Jewish leaders, and then behold Jesus at the end. First, let's look at Pilate. I think he's representative of so much of the world and its relationship, and it's the way it thinks and its approach to Jesus. C.S. Lewis um, talked about this dynamic in an essay that he wrote called God in the Dock. 
God in the dock. He began the essay saying this. He said, I have been asked to write about the difficulties a man must face in trying to present the Christian faith to modern unbelievers. So what makes it hard to, to kind of communicate the gospel to the modern unbeliever, C.S. Lewis says. And he goes through talking about, basically, how there was a time when people could hear the gospel a bit easier because we all just assumed if there is a God, we're accountable to Him. Right? We come under Him. He wrote this, he said this, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who commits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. That's Pilate and Jesus. The man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And God is on trial, and God is found laughable, mockable by man. We are not so different. The modern man has decided, I think, in our culture, if God does exist, if I allow Him to actually exist, He will exist on my terms. I will determine how God will be if He is to be at all. You sound a lot like Pilate talking to God, hey, talking to Jesus. Jesus. He says, don't you know I have authority, you know, to either release you, to let you keep going, or to crucify you? The modern man talks almost exactly the same. I have that kind of authority in my life. You will either be relevant to me or you will not be relevant to me, and I have that kind of authority. God had better be how I decide him to be. Otherwise, I remove him from my life or we will all remove him from our culture. If he is to stay, he must conform to the world. You see this everywhere. I could never believe in a God who... I just wouldn't believe in a God that... Okay. God is in the dock. You are on the bench. It's Pride Month, and I I saw a picture um, online of someone wearing a a rainbow-coloured T-shirt which said, Not today, Jesus. Not today, Jesus. God is in the dock. Man is on the bench. But the irony is the message. With all Pilate's apparent authority, Pilate actually doesn't get what he wants. He lives in fear of losing his position. He can't even get Jesus to answer his questions. When Pilate says to Jesus, Do you not know all about all my authority? Jesus is like, you would not have that authority if someone else didn't give it to you. Who is actually ignorant of who has authority in that room? It's Pilate. One commentator wrote like this, he said, In this intimate conversation, it became apparent that only one free man was in that room, the suffering Jesus. Pilate wanted to release Jesus in the worst way, but he could not. If ever a man was caught and crushed like a helpless doll on the wheel of life, it was Pilate. And so it is for our arrogant world. God is not on the dock. We are. And we will all one day sit before the judgment seat of God. Believe in Him or not, that will happen. And we will give an account to Him. He exists independent of our opinions. So we've seen Pilate. Let's look at the Jewish leaders. Again, the irony is the message. Through this narrative, Pilate has actually been preaching to the Jewish leaders the truth in a mocking way. But he's not lying. When he says, behold your king, he really is saying it's true. When he says, shall I crucify your king? They should have heard it. When he put a crown on his head, they should have recognized a king. When he said, this man is innocent, they should have heard him. But their king, it turns out, is actually Caesar. Spent their whole lives probably telling and preaching and teaching, God is king, God is king. The Jewish leaders, they believe in God, God is king. God is the ultimate king. Okay, here's God. Oh, okay, Caesar's king. 
Oh, I think we do the same thing. I believe in God. We, you know, our world. Okay, I believe in God. I believe in God. I believe in God. Okay, here's God. Oh, I believe in money. I believe in self. I believe, I believe in politics. See, God says, comes to us in his word <clears throat> as king. King Jesus, in his word, says he tells us what to do. He calls us to follow him, to die to ourselves. God is king of our money. He is king of your time. He is king of how you treat people. He is king of husbands, how you treat your wives. He is king, wives, of how you treat your husbands. He is king of how we parent children. He's king over, the, over you. He is king over our marriages. He is king over our sexuality. He is king over all. And where we reject God, we are speaking like the Jewish leaders saying, well, Caesar is king. How foolish. Saying that doesn't suddenly make God not king. He still is. And how foolish because Caesar dies. The great Roman Empire collapses. And the true king standing right in front of them is alive today. And his gospel has spread throughout the entire world so that here we are on the Gold Coast worshipping him in this morning. He is the king. So finally, let's behold Jesus. Again, the irony is the message. It's all actually true, but it's even more than what they're saying. He's not just a king. Well, Jesus is the king of kings. He's not just king of the Jews, he's king of the whole world. One day, all will bow their knee to his kingship. He is the eternal, he's not just the son of God that they might have, have thought, he is truly the eternal son of God. All that is true and, and he dies on a cross. Amazing. They had no category for that. He couldn't possibly be all those things and die on a cross. And the fact is, he is all those things, and he dies on a cross. And the message of the cross looked foolish that day, didn't it? It looked ridiculous. And most of them spent all, most of their time just trying to show how ridiculous this all is. It's clearly foolishness. Well, nothing has changed. The cross was foolish the day it happened. Remember what Paul wrote, writes in, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20, and on he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? He might say, where is Pilate? Where are the Jewish leaders? Where are the soldiers? Where is the, where is the modern man? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The world today will still say in derision, is this your king? Behold your king? Really? That's him? It's the stuff of fairy tales. You mean to say this is how God, this is God's plan to save the world? A man dying hanging on a cross. Foolishness. See, the fundamental question that this passage presents us with, isn't it, is what, what will you make of it? What will you make of a king that dies on a cross? What will you make of that message? What will you make of the Lord Jesus? Do you buy into the mockery of everyone around? Do you go, yep, that, that was, that's worth mocking? Or do you see the irony and believe it? Unashamedly, the message of this sermon, and I mean, probably every sermon, is behold this man, in Pilate's words. We're just presenting Jesus. Behold him. Because when you behold him, you're beholding God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So behold, behold the man. Behold the man 
the Lord Jesus, the God-made man, the incarnate God himself, God-made flesh. Behold that man, and there we behold God. When we behold Jesus, we behold the wisdom of God, behold the love of God, behold the mercy of God, behold the justice of God, behold the righteousness of God, and behold the glory of God at the cross. We behold Him, we finish with Him, and we present Him because He is the gospel. He is the message. The gospel, the the message of Christianity, is not merely some vague idea of forgiveness, kind of feeling forgiven out there. We are not offering some kind of substance called grace which could come into your life. It's not some abstract notion of mercy that you could receive. We are offering a person, the person of the Lord Jesus. Behold this man. Behold him. Have him. Look on him. And in him we get all those things. Forgiveness, mercy, grace. Martin Luther, um, the reformer, found this out and it just changed everything. When he found out that actually grace is not just like a substance that gets into our lives, but it's all actually the person of the Lord Jesus, that in the gospel we receive him, changed everything. He, write, he said rightly, I offer no life apart from him, for there is none to be had. Through faith in Christ, Listen to this. Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. All that he has becomes ours, or rather, he himself becomes ours. He himself becomes ours. You're right. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. For no sin is greater than the blood of this lamb, and we are clothed in him. Praise God. Let me pray. Father, that this morning we would behold the Lord Jesus. We would receive Him. And when we look at Him, we would not laugh or mock. We would be stunned instead by His glory, His grace, His overflowing mercy for sinners like us, undeserving, And yet, in Christ, on offer to us even this morning, we get everything. Help us to receive him rightly this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.